Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Shonda Bed Tales Radio. Today we are up to episode number nine, and it's going to be called Take a Bite Out of History Biscuits. Now, when I got involved in Laura, I found that she kind of sucks you in, and I find this is true of a lot of people. And it isn't enough to just like you to like the books you or to like her words, people tend to get pulled into trying to do the same things that Laura did. And so you want a Laura dress, you want to try Laura crafts, and you want to cook and bake the same foods Laura describes in the book. And, of course, this is most obviously shown in the fact that about the second piece of actual Laura Anna, official Laura Anna, put out by HarperCollins was The Little House Cookbook by Barbara Walker. And there is a nifty interview that I did with Barbara Walker a couple of years ago in one of the back issues of The Homesteader. So I would encourage you, if you don't subscribe to The Homesteader, to check that out because it really was a very interesting interview. And uh, we're going to be looking today at one of the ways that I got pulled into doing Laura, which was, of course, food. And I also did the Laura Ingalls Wilder Patchwork Workshop for Usher's Ferry Historic Village. And I did that for, oh, about seven years or so. And in addition towards sort of overseeing the whole thing and doing sort of the Laura portion, I also had, uh, we also had a series of hands-on activities, and I did the baking one. And so this is going to be very, very basic food history. Anybody ought to be able to handle it. And I hope that you will enjoy it a little bit. And before we get to that, though, I do want to do a little housekeeping. And uh, that was my old-fashioned broom going across the wood floor. If anybody can think of a different effect for housekeeping, I would be most interested in what you had to say. But in this context, what it means is we're just going to kind of look over a few of the things that are coming up. And I just wanted to let everybody know uh, that we topped the 3,000 listen mark this last week. And in fact, we're, we were sitting at 3,026 right before I came on the air. And I think that uh, I just really appreciate everybody taking such an interest in the show, and I hope you will continue to tune in and listen and tell all your friends. As far as the next episode, I have gotten someone from the Ingalls Homestead to agree to come on to speak. However, they were still deciding which one of them were going to agree to do it, and we hadn't gotten a date set when this started. So I will have to let you know. It'll be in roughly two weeks, and I will let you know uh, on the various uh, pages. I have a Trendle Bed Tells Radio page on both my blog and my website. 
I will tweet it, so you can follow me there in Trendle Bed Tales. And you can also follow me on Facebook as Sarah Utah. If you want to friend me and you're just a Laura fan, put a little note in your message so I know who you are. And so I will go ahead and approve it because uh, I approve Laura fans, but I don't approve just strange people. So uh, I also want to make sure that you get a chance to check out the Trendle Bed Tales YouTube page because we've had two videos uploaded since the last show, one that shows is our bottle calf and one that shows our April Fool's meal. So be sure to check those out too. And this month being April, I'm going to be starting my programs for the year. I, my first one of the year is April 14th in Fort Madison, Iowa. And if you'd like to have me come and speak for your group, be sure to get a hold of me. Now, with the... Uh, uh, sweeping sound over and housekeeping done, we're going to move on to the biscuits and we'll just see how things go. And uh, if we've got a little time at the end, I'll tell you a little bit more about the Laura Ingalls Wilder Patch Workshop because uh, people are uh, tend to be interested in that. And if we don't have enough time this uh, program, then maybe we'll do a whole program on that some other time. Now, as I say, the biscuits were one of the hands-on programs, and the activities that were put together for the Loring with Wilder Patch by the Mississippi Valley Girl Scout Council had several requirements uh, that everybody had to do, and one was cook a prairie meal. So that's what we started doing. And uh, we would have the girls come in, and everybody would sit on the floor, and we would talk about... Um, what would be in a prairie meal, especially a prairie lunch, because this was getting close to lunchtime usually. And the truth is, out on the prairie, a lot of times lunch wasn't the the big meal uh, because you, especially if you were moving in your covered wagon, you couldn't really stop and cook a big meal. So a lot of times it would be leftovers or things that you had to warm up. And in fact, if you read Little House in the Prairie, they talk about one day uh, they describe a prairie lunch, which is basically a corn biscuit that they have, um, one each for Mary and one for Laura. And so we decided to do just a biscuit for them, and we decided to do a wheat biscuit instead of cornmeal, uh, just because it's a little bit more straightforward and uh, is a nice, easy recipe. So the first thing that I would have the girls do is go and wash their hands, because safety first in the kitchen, and one of the things uh, that I had was uh, going and I would have water for them, a hand washing station, and I had 24 towels that I went through and uh, hemmed on the treadle sewing machine, so there would be two fresh towels every time they washed their hands, and I had them wash their hands twice, once before we cooked and once after. One time, and this is just a little piece of information for life you may want to hold on to, if you were at a, a activity with a hundred other people and you find yourself alone in a house and you think you're in the right spot, there's about a 1% chance that you're smarter than everybody else and you're in the right spot and a 99% chance that you should go and look and find the right place because one time I had a very colorful experience where one of the mothers got in the wrong spot and took it upon herself to take all 24 of my nice, clean, dry towels and wash them with her daughter to keep her busy until we got there. So don't do that. 
uh, anyway, so we had them wash their hands, and in later times we actually did go to using brown paper towels, which we couldn't find an exact date on, but seemed to be late 19th century, early 20th century, which was roughly the village's time period, and it just worked out a lot better. And I will actually come back, uh, because the hand towels, after they washed them, we've used them as part of our fire starter because they could go right in the firebox of the stove. Because as I told the girls, look around, there isn't much of way in a wastebasket. Or uh, you'd use the cloth. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as being a very recycling society, but really the pioneers sort of had a market on that, partly because they just had to. They had to make another use out of everything. So I had the girls wash their hands, and they came in and they stood around the table, and we started going through the ingredients and uh, the first one, and I'm just going to read through the list of ingredients first, and then I'm going to come back and talk about them. And this is just a very basic biscuit, baking powder biscuit recipe. And it takes one quarter cup shortening, one tablespoon sugar, one teaspoon salt, three teaspoons baking powder, two cups flour, and three-fourths of a cup of milk. So the first thing I'd always have ready for them because they came in because uh, it was the fourth of a cup shortening. And even this was not an ideal situation. Historically, uh, the shortening might have been lard, which is made from processed animal fat, and you can still get it. Uh, lard is preferable to use in baked goods if you can get it because they it just makes a very... Uh, cr um, flaky uh, product and it really is a nice thing to work with particularly with pie crusts I will lard pie crusts are the definite way to go but they might have done a couple other things and about as close as you could get to lard easily with a bunch of girls who all went ooh when you explained what lard was was uh, solid vegetable shortening so that's what we used and we had a quarter cup of um, shortening to start out in our bowl and then we would take the bowl around and everybody would put in one ingredient as we went. And uh, the next one, of course, would be one tablespoon sugar. Now, to try and make sure there was an ingredient for everybody, as I said, the, there was quite often a lot of girls, and there was only, if you had everything just by itself, there would only be six ingredients. So we did a little math here that we worked in a two at two, and I'm going to ask the chat room where we have several people in there, does anybody in the chat room know how many teaspoons are in one tablespoon? And we'll see. Don't all answer at once. And are in a teaspoon. Oh, I wrote that backwards. How many teaspoons are in a tablespoon? Anybody? No, I asked them a question and 
No answer. Okay. Well, they are, there are actually three teaspoons in a tablespoon. And it's uh, – so we would break it up and everybody would do a teaspoon. And that's kind of an important thing, too. And, ah, Carrie Ingalls came in three. That is exactly right. Uh, ah, and there's Laura. Oh, we must have time delay here. This is not good. I'll have to type it in before I, I ask it on air next time. Okay. Uh, so I would have each of the girls do three. Now, I would also stop right there and talk a little bit about standardized measurements because back in the pioneer time, most of the recipes did not read nice things like three teaspoons of uh, uh, baking powder. They said things like take butter the size of an egg or use part of the – or fill up the uh, – mug with the cracked handle from the, you know, things like that. They weren't really standardized. And the person who got standardized measurements, who said we have to be more scientific about baking, was Fanny Farmer. And frankly, I think the woman deserved a Congressional Medal of Honor. Nobody much talks about Fanny Farmer anymore, but her uh, cookbook, she actually wrote about six cookbooks, but the one everybody talks about is the uh, Boston Cooking School cookbook, and even that isn't as famous as it used to be. But she was the one who really said everybody ought to have standardized measurements for cooking. And she thought that they, when she did this, she didn't invent new things. She used things people already had around the house. So when they say teaspoon, they mean just a teaspoon like you have out of your drawer in your cupboard. And if they say tablespoon, they mean the bigger tablespoons. Uh, so the exact measurements, um, or how exact the measurements were came along a little later, but this was the first real standard. And when you actually got to the point of having measuring spoons, it was much later, and that was actually done uh, by the Betty Crocker Company, where you suddenly would buy the teaspoon, a special teaspoon and, and tablespoon, and one with the halves and the quarters and this. In fact, uh, before, what you would do if you just wanted a half or a third or whatever is you'd actually fill up the teaspoon like level, clear it off, and then divide it and just have the whatever, the third of it or the half of it or the quarter or whatever. So it was uh, always an interesting thing, and I always uh, think that it's great to get a chance to tell people about how much better Fannie Farmer has made their lives because I think everybody is glad they no longer have to figure out how much butter is the size of an egg. So we did that, and then we got to salt, and I'm going to type a question in the chat room again and see if anybody knows. Um, because salt is a pretty uh, important ingredient in people's health. Uh, because it used to be, it used to be that people would get quite frequently these growths on their face and neck, and they would call them a goiter, and it would come about because of the deficiency in something that they put in salt today. Iodine! Uh, as my grandfather would say, Carrie Ingalls, you have won a silver dollar. Uh, not really, though. But anyway, yes, they put iodine in salt, and if you notice the label of most salts, it says iodized. And that was because um, true iodine normally is found naturally in seafood. And most people inland were not getting enough seafood. So they decided that they could add iodine to salt. And that would 
uh, make sure that everybody got enough. So uh, that was behind the salt, and we put in a teaspoon of salt. Then we get to three teaspoons baking powder. Now, back when Laura was cooking or Ma was cooking on the prairie, they wouldn't really be using baking powder. Uh, baking powder is a fairly modern invention, and it actually is a mix of a couple different uh, uh, rising agents. Um, but back then, they would have used you know, a variety of things that were available. And if I ever do one of these where I talk about the gingerbread, Laura's gingerbread recipe, what you do with the boiling water, uh, they had, uh, when, when you uh, are making the gingerbread, is actually something that you don't have to do with baking powder today, but with the kind of leavening that they were using at the time, you did have to put it in boiling water for it to, to be activated. And so that's why we still, when we make Laura's gingerbread, do the boiling water is because of the older methods of leavening. But uh, I always think it's very interesting to point out the packaging on baking powder and uh, the amounts that you see. Now, uh, I'm going to ask again and see if anybody remembers. How uh, uh, how many did we say uh, teaspoons were in a tablespoon? And I'm going to uh, go ahead and just remind you if you can't remember by now. It was three. So uh, why do you suppose that you always see baking powder written and you do. You always see it this way. Powder written as uh, three teaspoons instead of one tablespoon because it would be the same thing. Why do you suppose they uh, did it that way? And uh, if you aren't sure, think about your container of baking powder. And if you have, to, if you are not a cook, I want you to imagine uh, the container. It's a little round container. It's got a hole in it. it uh, the nice ones have a thing along the side to level it off as you pull it up. And basically, uh, we want to. They write it as three teaspoons because the holes in the containers, as they are shaped, won't accommodate a measuring spoon tablespoon. It's just not big enough. The packaging doesn't work that way. So in order to accommodate the packaging, you will always see uh, three teaspoons instead of one tablespoon. And Carrie Ingalls had guessed that in the chat room. You know, she's just on fire today, although Laura has uh, chimed in on a couple of, of them too, Laura Wellsler. So, uh so that is exactly right. It's the size of the spoon and the type of the packaging. So that's why we do three teaspoons instead of one tablespoon. And look around at recipes as you see them, and you will notice that that is always true. So I had each one of the girls put in uh, one teaspoon of baking powder. Now next up was two cups flour. And we used a wheat flour for ours. We could have, of course, done 
grounded ourselves like they did in the long winter with just getting hard wheat and putting it in a coffee grinder, but we actually used store-bought flour for this. Uh, the girls actually ate them, and I figured I had a little better chance of them trying it if it was regular flour. And that got us to another piece of equipment in the room because in the corner of the Usher's House kitchen in in the Usher's Ferry Museum was an ice box. Now, I've got another question for the chat room. Uh, what did they call an ice box in the 19th century? And you guys can be thinking about that, too. Now, if you don't know what it is, this one, they actually had a very nice icebox there that had uh, they had gotten out of um, an old business downtown that had given its contents to uh, the, the museum. And so it was a beautiful icebox. But uh, picture a uh, wooden box. They came in various sizes. There was usually a door of some sort in the top and then another larger door below it. And how this would work was in the top part, you would put a block of ice. Now, this was not something that would happen on the prairie a lot or on the families uh, or on farms because you generally didn't have a lot of ice to spare. Almanzo uh, and his family had that lovely ice house, so they, they had an ice box that would be no problem. But most people wouldn't have been able to have that constant flow of ice. So they took the ice, uh, but in cases where they did, they would take the ice and put it above in the top part of the unit. And I'm not going to make the people in the, the chat room do this one, although you can say you knew this already if you want to. But I always ask the girls, which way does cold air go? Does cold air sink or cold air rise? And if you have to think about it a minute, cold air sinks. So you put the ice at the top, and then the cold air would come around the bottom unit, which is where you'd put things, and it would stay cool. I mean, it wasn't like uh, what we think of as an electric refrigerator today, but it was, you know, a cooler, and it would take longer to... Um, actually it, to spoil so it would stay around a little bit longer and uh, the girls always loved seeing that and they said such a nice ice box there now uh, I had put in the chat room what do you call an ice box in the 19th century and strangely enough the term ice box actually comes from the 20th century because uh, before that they called it a refrigerator and it wasn't until there were electric refrigerators and they had to compare the ice boxes to something else to explain how it wasn't uh, an electric refrigerator that the term ice box really got to be popular. So if you ever get to go back into the 19th century through time travel and someone talks about a refrigerator, don't be too impressed. They probably just mean an ice box. And so we would take our pitcher out of that and we would fill up uh, three-fourths of a cup of milk. And again, we would just use um, a, a teacup that we had around the kitchen because we didn't have all these exact measuring things that Betty Crocker brought out later. And that would be our three-fourths a cup of milk. 
Now, then we had to mix up the ingredients, and we stirred it up with a spoon first, and then we kneaded the dough in the bowl after having uh, floured their hands. And uh, we would pass the bowl around, and a couple people would get get to uh, knead it, and then they would all get to make a biscuit, and we would put it on a tray. And a lot of the girls were really appalled about the idea at first about putting their hands in the dough, but most of them came around quickly. And as I always told them, it's easy enough to make biscuits that I hope I never hear any of you using freezer biscuits because you can all mix up biscuits now. So uh, when we got them all rolled out, and we made kind of small ones, so there was enough for uh, everybody in the batch of dough. I usually went about golf size, golf ball size. If you were going to actually do this to serve to your family, you probably want a little smaller than your fist. Uh, and then you put those on a uh, cookie sheet, and you bake them. If you had an, an oven with an adjustable thermometer, like, like your, your modern oven, you'll have it at 450 degrees, and it would bake from 10 to 12 minutes. You couldn't necessarily guarantee that, though, with the cook stove. A cook stove's a highly personalized thing. Uh, they tend to... Uh, oh, and Laura was chiming in about the refrigerator, so uh, thank you, Laura. Um, so... The stove that we had there was a fairly typical cook stove. It was, it was sort of a nice one. The one Laura talks about is a little earlier in the books than, than this one was, where you have a cook stove, you have sort of an oven on one side or the other, and you have a couple um, plates on the top. It's uh, roughly the size of a oversized coffee table, a little taller than that maybe, and that is sort of what your stove looks like. This one was larger than that. Ours had a firebox on one side and a reservoir on other. the other. The reservoir you always keep full of water, both because um, you always have hot water available then for like washing. You wouldn't want to drink it, but uh, for washing up or doing dishes, you could always pull water out of there. You also had to keep it full of water because it made it much less likely to rust than if you let it dry out, and it also would sort of balance the heat from the firebox because it would absorb heat in while the fire was going, and then it would reflect it out. And stoves were very personal things. You kind of have to work with a particular stove for a while to get it to um, sort of trust you and sort of do what you want because there, you always have to fiddle with the stove a little bit. But the firebox is actually small compared with the size of the oven, and it's sort of an interesting um, thing to do, and we would show the girls, you know, how we had the fire in one side, and they would uh, get to put their batch of biscuits in the oven, and we'd close up the door, and they would cook. Now, we didn't have time to just let them cook the whole time, of course, so also on this stove, which had something that I miss many a time when I'm cooking at home, and that is the warming oven, which was a shelf. It's a warming shelf if it's just a shelf. If you get to uh, the farm in Malone, Burke, the Almanza Wilder House, they, the stove they have there has just a warming shelf. This one had a warming oven, so it was an enclosed metal box, and it actually did get fairly warm after you'd had the stove going for a while. And so we'd have a batch of uh, biscuits in there, and we'd tell them, voila, magic here, and we'd pull out the bowl of, of cooked biscuits. 
And uh, then I'd pull out the sorghum because I thought originally that it would help get the girls to try and taste it because we didn't have any butter or anything, and they really wouldn't have had butter much on the prairie. You have to have an established milk cow before you can really have butter. So, um, And I didn't think they'd take to the idea of having lard on there, some other shortening. So I thought, well, we'll go with sorghum, which is a product that is grown around Iowa. Uh, and you process it through a sorghum mill, and it comes out with something that is rather like molasses. And it's actually interesting because when I went down to Louisiana, I went to a sugarcane plantation where they did something incredibly similar to get sugarcane. And uh, it's sort of interesting how all these products are related and done in a similar way. The mills even looked identical, so... It was uh, kind of interesting, but the girls really didn't like the sorghum too much overall and kind of had to be coaxed into trying it the first time, but uh, I think it went really well with the biscuits, and everybody ate theirs, and then they washed their hands again, and they put the brown paper towels back in the firebox, and uh, that batch of, of biscuits would go for the next group of girls coming in. So it's really easy to do a batch of biscuits, but really... It's uh, also a, a lot of history to be found in just those few ingredients. And I hope that you enjoyed sharing them with me and that you will tune in the next time we do a, a food history lesson. I'll be getting to you shortly about as soon as I get it scheduled when the next episode will be. And we'll again be talking to somebody from the Ingalls Homestead and that'll be somewhere in the next two weeks. So the next one will be an interview show, and I hope you enjoy that as well. Thank you for joining us on Trendlebed Tales Radio. Be sure to stop by the blog, the YouTube site, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you very much. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.